You're listening to Earshot from WXXI News. I'm Veronica Volk. This week, without the proper support, spousal caregivers can suffer from high rates of depression. It's really hard to have a spouse who, when he looks at you, you're not sure if he recognizes you. Plus, artists are installing earth altars as a way to help people process the last 16 months of the pandemic. Think about the past, but heal from it also. And Governor Andrew Cuomo declared a state of emergency for New York, this time over rising gun violence. But not everyone thinks that's a good idea. There's certainly no doubt that the governor enjoyed his time in the limelight during the COVID pandemic when he was calling all the shots. All that from your local news podcast, Earshot. In sickness and in health, these are familiar wedding vows, traditionally Christian, but they can be seriously tested by an unexpected illness or disability. The transition from partner to caregiver can be complicated and intense and traumatic, and it can also leave the caregiving spouse feeling isolated and alone. My colleague Raquel Steven looked into this and also found supports that might help. She has this story. Hey, Mike, can I give you some pudding? Sure. Okay, thank you. Ginger Henricks has been married to her husband, Mike, for 51 years. He is my best friend. So that's long and short of what it is. He is my best friend. Henricks says she's always been the talker and her husband the listener. And he still is. But now it's different. It first started with me thinking he had hearing problems because I'd ask him to get do something and he'd not do it. It's like, maybe you have hearing problems. But that wasn't the problem. Mike Henricks was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in 2011, and his wife became his full-time caregiver. It's really hard to have a spouse that you've married, been married to for all these years who, when he looks at you, you're not sure if he recognizes you. Providing round-the-clock care for her husband left Henrik's feeling isolated. So if you were to say to me, Ginger, are you ever lonely? I'd probably say, yes, definitely. Henrik's is one of roughly 5 million spousal caregivers in the United States. According to the Family Caregiver Alliance, 40 to 70 percent of family caregivers experience depression caused by isolation and loneliness. It can be even harder for spousal caregivers. Henrik says she wishes she could talk to people who understood what she was going through. I think a, a buddy network, you know, so that people are sharing what help, helps them when they get angry, for example. And somebody else says, I know exactly what you're feeling. And this is what I did. Laurel Whitman is the president-elect for the Well Spouse Association. They're a nonprofit that helps spousal caregivers. I think the very first step with people who join WellSpouse as members and come to our support groups is to get over the hump if you need to of how you talk about this loss. WellSpouse currently has about 450 members who they assist by providing support groups, respite weekends, and other resources. According to a recent AARP report on caregiving, that in-person social interaction may be important to prevent isolation. Whitman says the relationships that members build with each other are the most beneficial. People make connections, right? And we think that part of those connections help with the loneliness, right? In a, a very broad sense. It helps, you know, fill in that gap that we don't always get because we can't talk about our situations in the real world. Wellspouse has helped people like Barry Applebaum. 
that helped me to look at the glass half full. Applebaum has been a spousal caregiver ever since his wife had a massive stroke a little over 10 years ago. When he found Wellspouse, it immediately felt like home. It's helped me in some fantastic friendships and relationships I've made with people who have walked in my shoes. But with just 20 chapters nationwide, some members like Applebaum have to drive hours to attend a meeting. And then finally I said, you know, I'm getting burned out from that. So at that point, I decided to start my own group. Applebaum's group has been operating for about four years, and there are other chapters across the country started by other spousal caregivers. His group is currently on hiatus, but he's looking forward to restarting meetings and mentoring others. You can't lose sight on on taking care of yourself and fulfilling your physical and mental needs because if you don't, you will absolutely hit a burnout point. Raquel Steven is the health reporter for WXXI News. Hi, this is Evan Dawson from WXXI. And if you're enjoying Earshot, then you'll want to subscribe to our other podcast, Connections with Evan Dawson. That's me. On the podcast, you can catch up on discussions about current events, arts, politics, and interesting people. Subscribe to Connections with Evan Dawson, where you subscribe to Earshot from WXXI News. Now that our lives aren't completely dictated by COVID restrictions, this summer feels a little bit more normal. But it's a lot to process. For over a year, collectively, we've experienced serious loss of the people we love, of freedom to move through the world in a way that was familiar, of time with our families and friends. So before we move on from the pandemic, a lot of people might need to process that, that sorrow and grief and other emotions they experienced during the crisis. And there are people creating space to do just that. My colleague Beth Adams spoke to a few of them. She has this story. The heat and humidity are already heavy in the air on a summer morning at the Ganondagan State Historic Site in Victor. Seneca and Onondaga artist Mike Jones leads us to a peaceful spot beneath the majestic canopy of a massive old apple tree. In the center of the clearing is a tree stump, and on it sits a clay pot nestled in a straw bed. It's a giant Iroquois pot, uh, and um, I made it look like the pieces were put back together. And uh, each piece is something that you can do to heal trauma. Um, So forgive, self-reflect, dance, create, keep a good mind, meditate, those types of things. Jones lifts the pot and carries it to one of two roughly constructed ash benches placed on either side of the tree stump. He hopes visitors will see this as a kind of sanctuary. I was hoping it would just be a meditative space to really um, feel gratitude for what you have, uh, your family and, and your friends. The benches sit about six feet apart And so it kind of reminds you of that and just being grateful that you, you know, you can see them face to face, you can speak to them, you can laugh, you can do all of those things, um, which are really, really important when you add them all up. Jeanette Jemison, program manager for Friends of Ganondagan, calls this space an earth altar. She came up with a concept for the project as a thoughtful response to the pandemic and a path to healing. Because of COVID and 
everything that we've all just come from, you know, the violence, the racism, everything, it just seems so negative over the past couple of years. Jemison also envisions the project as a bridge between different communities, indigenous, black, Latino, LGBTQ, refugee, and people with disabilities. She invited them to design their own earth altars. Each has its own style and symbolism. Disability rights advocate Letitia Doucette is building hers inside her Rochester apartment. It's a collection of potted plants. Some of them contain the ashes of loved ones who died, she said, from old age or illness because they didn't have access to the treatment they needed during the pandemic. I've lost a lot of people in the past year, and this will be another way to remember them and give them a place of honor and that their memory will continue to live and grow as the plants grow. Doucette collected written messages from people to tuck into the potting soil. That's why I chose plants, because they often remind me of, you have to dig into the soil, you have to kind of uproot things, you have to take something that has outgrown its pot and put it into something else. At the Black House on Tremont Street in Rochester, Rachel de Guzman is getting ready to open what she calls a peace altar, a non-denominational spiritual sanctuary. For de Guzman, president and CEO of 21st Century Arts, the project is an opportunity to reflect on what she refers to as the dual pandemics of COVID-19 and systemic racism. She says artist Mia Leslie is creating three-foot worry dolls made from recycled materials to define the space within the art gallery. The worry dolls, we hope, will let people go into this space and leave um, anxiety and um, negativity that we're all experiencing behind and really connect with our common humanity. That's our objective. People visiting the altar will be able to leave something, a note or a picture, and take something with them such as a poem or an inspiring quote. As much as people may feel the need to grieve what they lost during the past 16 months, Jemison believes the earth altars offer the promise of something more. People are starting to come out of their houses, and we're all starting to gather again, and and it's a feeling of celebration. And maybe we're on our way back to a more positive place, and that's what we hope that these altars will all symbolize. Beth Adams is the host of Morning Edition on WXXI. Our photographer Max Schulte got some amazing pictures of these earth altars. You can see them on our website, wxxinews.org. Our final story comes from the state capitol. This week, Governor Andrew Cuomo said the upsurge in gun-related violence is a public health emergency equivalent to the COVID-19 pandemic, and he declared a state of emergency in New York. But critics are saying there are other ways to tackle gun violence that would be more effective. They're also questioning Cuomo's political motivations, since taking this action gives him more power. Karen DeWitt has this story. First state in the nation is going to declare a disaster emergency on gun violence. 
Less than two weeks after giving up the emergency powers he held during the pandemic, Cuomo says a state of emergency declaration is once again needed as shooting incidents continue to increase and threaten public health. He says over the July 4th weekend, 51 people were the victims of gun violence, more than the 13 New Yorkers who died from the coronavirus. We want to do with gun violence what we just did with COVID. That's what we want. We want the same level of attention, the same level of energy. The emergency declaration sets up a new Office of Gun Violence Prevention within the state's health department. State police will set up a type of border control operation to try to seize illegal guns brought in from other states before they are used to commit crimes. The emergency order also allows the governor to suspend state procurement rules to funnel $138 million in state funds to gun prevention and community-based services programs. Several Democratic state lawmakers and union leaders who attended the speech backed the actions. But others, including the state's Republican leaders, say there's no need for the governor to once again grant himself special powers. Will Barclay is the Assembly Minority Leader. He says recent criminal justice changes enacted by Democrats in the legislature and signed by the governor, including bail reform and a measure known as Raise the Age, which treats 16- and 17-year-olds who commit serious crimes as juveniles instead of adults were well-intentioned but went too far. He says it's better to revise those laws to prevent career criminals from taking advantage. Whether it's bail reform, whether it's raise the age, or this general narrative about defunding the police and the police are our enemies, I think the combination of all those policies is having a, a big effect on this increase in violent crime we're seeing throughout the state. The governor is facing different political circumstances than in the spring of 2020 when he obtained sweeping emergency powers during the pandemic that allowed him to shut down schools and businesses and even limit the number of people someone could invite to their home. His executive orders and daily briefings on the virus brought him widespread praise and the highest popularity ratings among voters during his decade as governor. Now Cuomo is facing multiple scandals and investigations, including allegations of sexual harassment and whether he and his top aides hid the number of nursing home residents who died of the virus. A recent poll by Siena College finds most New Yorkers don't want him to seek a fourth term in office, but the survey also found that most New Yorkers largely continue to approve of Cuomo's handling of the pandemic. Barclay, the Assembly Republican leader, says the governor, in declaring a new state of emergency, may be trying to regain some of his lost footing. I can't guess someone's motivation or get in their heads, but there's certainly no doubt that the governor enjoyed his time in the limelight during the COVID pandemic when he was calling all the shots. I mean, he had a a daily press conference. He even, as you know, wrote a book uh, with help from staff, apparently, uh, about leadership during that pandemic. So, you know, it's not hard to just draw the line from A to B here. Cuomo's likely GOP opponent in the race for governor, Long Island Congressman Lee Zeldin, was more blunt. He called the governor's actions the Cuomo Show 2.0, and he said that no one wants to relive that chapter of state history. Karen DeWitt is the Capitol Bureau Chief for New York State Public Radio. You've been listening to Earshot from WXXI News, and we want to know what are the stories you're thinking about? What are you talking about in your community? Drop us a line at earshot at WXXI.org. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast to keep up to date on local news. Find even more at our website, WXXINews.org. Music this week from Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. 
I'm Veronica Volk. Thanks for listening. This program is a production of member-supported WXXI Public Broadcasting, Rochester, New York.